Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, the threat or denial of climate change is a constant in the news cycle. Something's not making a whole lot of sense uh, when it comes to inconsistent data being produced and being fed, especially to our children, when it comes to global warming or climate change, whatever they're calling it today. But occasional sound bites do little to address the seriousness of the issue or change behavior. The staff at Humanities Washington wanted a deeper discussion, so they called together a climate scientist, a politician, and an environmental journalist to talk about the issues we face at length in a bar, like people do. This Think and Drink conversation features Amy Snover, director of the University of Washington Climate Impacts Group, Seattle City Council member Mike O'Brien, and KUOW environment reporter Ashley Ahern. They spoke at Naked City Brewery and Tap House on March 30th. Anna Tadashev recorded their talk. Here, KUOW's Ashley Ahern starts the conversation. Hi, everyone. Wow, it's so wonderful to be here. What a full, full house. This is going to make for a great conversation. Our last event, we had wonderful audience questions, so be thinking about what you want to contribute to this conversation, and don't be shy. Come right up. We're going to devote at least half of this evening to um, questions from the audience. Um, But first... We have a really wonderful um, evening planned here. So I cover, I've cover i been covering the environment for 10 years now for NPR, and five of them here in Seattle. So yeah, so the two big topics that I was really psyched to address tonight is what is climate change going to look like in this region? For many of you here tonight, you're probably wondering, well, how is this going to affect me? How is this going to affect my children in the years to come? Um, that's one part of what we're going to be talking about tonight. And the other is what are politicians doing about it, if anything? Um, And so we have two wonderful folks to address that tonight. Amy Snover is the director of the Climate Impacts Group at the University of Washington. And Amy is my go-to for pretty much a lot of the brainstorming on stories, the backgrounding on stories, when I am faced with the question of, what does sea level rise look like here in Washington State? She's the first phone call I make. So when Zeki mentioned this topic, I said, she's the one. We're going to have her on this panel. And you may know Councilman Mike O'Brien. He's served on the City Council of Seattle for six years. (laughs) And is also a kayaktivist, so he was kind of a no-brainer to have on this panel as well in terms of talking about um, political inertia and the, the good work that many politicians are doing to try to incorporate the science into their leadership decisions wherever possible. So thank you guys so much for coming out tonight. All right. So to start things off, I really wanted to pull... We pulled together some key stats that I thought would help bring home the reality of climate change already. Now, the disclaimer, of course, is every extreme weather event, no single extreme weather event can be attributed to climate change specifically, right? I have to say that, like, all the time. Hosts have to say that all the time because it's true. Scientists would not want to say the flooding in the Skagit or the extreme rain this winter is directly because of climate change. It's all about looking at the patterns and the trends. So what I wanted to do is bring together some of those numbers, um, just about those patterns and trends, and the very real costs that they have for us. And then we're going to turn to Amy, and she's going to give us a short PowerPoint just on what we, what we can expect in the years to come. All right. I used to look forward to reporting in the summertime as a great time to get out with scientists in the field and stuff like that, and now I just have this feeling of dread when I look at how many millions of dollars we're going to be spending fighting wildfires this summer or drought on the peninsula. So... 2015, Washington had more than 1,500 wildfires at a cost of more than $300 million to deal with them. So for us here in Seattle, we may not have been directly impacted, but the rest of the state was feeling that for real. 
Um, in 2015, for the first time, the U.S. Forest Service spent more than half of its budget fighting fires. So those are dollars that would have gone to things like forestry monitoring, science, infrastructure upkeep, like roads so you can get to the hiking trails you know and love, staff, the kind of stuff that we rely on our federal agencies to provide for us. That money's going to fighting wildfires now. And it's projected to go up to two-thirds of the budget by 2025. In 2015, every county in the state was declared in a state of emergency at some point during the year, either from flooding or wildfire. Every county in the state, statewide. Washington Department of Agriculture estimates the drought cost farmers more than 300 million last year. And that's say nothing of ocean acidification impacts on our shellfish industry, loss, losses to the ski industry, salmon fishery, low river flows, the rest of it. So with that, I want to turn it over to Amy Snover on that, that exciting, upbeat note. Um, point being, the costs are real, and we, it would behoove us as a society to be thinking about what we do about that and what we can expect. So take it away, Amy. Thanks. Great. Thanks. Hey, thanks for coming out tonight on a sunny night. Um, and uh, I guess I have to begin by continuing the doom and gloom. Um, but but there, yeah, we chose the venue wisely. So when we think about climate change, for a long time the question was, are humans going to cause climate change? And I'm sure many of you know that that is no longer the question. We know that we have caused it. We know that we're causing more. And so the appropriate questions, the ones we're dealing with all the time now, are how fast will climate change? What will it mean for us? And what can we do about it? And so I want to talk really briefly about what we might expect here in the region and uh, sort of what it might look like in the near and longer term. So when I think about the impacts of climate change, I think of sort of three major buckets. One is I think about how it's going to affect the environment we live in. And by that, I mean everything from how warm it is when you go outside to what grows in your garden to what you experience when you go to the mountains, if you hike or ski, um, what the coast looks like and where you experience river flooding or which fish you catch in the river. So your environment. And then I also think about the management and availability or cost of resources. So we depend a lot on natural resources in this region from hydropower, drinking water, irrigation water, um, I guess our energy, our transportation systems, our food systems, and all of these will be affected by a changing climate because they were built in anticipation of the previous climate, not the one that's coming. And then finally, the impacts and costs of dealing with extreme events, and, and Ashley gave us some numbers of those. So I think about those three buckets, but I'm going to just sort of walk you through the logic of what we understand about impacts on the region. So we always back up and say, what do we know is going to change outside sort of forcing the local changes in the environment? We know there's going to be substantial warming. Every single scenario we look at shows warming. No matter what we do about greenhouse gas emissions, we're going to warm. And by the 2050s, we're going to be warmer than we've experienced in most of our recent past. So we're talking about a four to a five degree warming um, by the 2050s in this region, depending on how much we actually emit. Increasing heavy rainfall, so the heaviest rain events getting heavier. Um, sea level rise is actually mentioned around a couple of feet by the middle, by the end of the century, but it could be as much as six feet. Um, ocean acidification and uh, continuing natural variability. So forever in a day, we're going to have to say, yeah, that thing that just happened, it was a combination of climate change and natural variability. But as time goes on, we're going to see more and more and more of those when they're caused by climate change. So one of the major ways that climate change impacts play out in the region is through the impact on our mountain snow. 
And I imagine a lot of you have already heard this story, right? So we depend on mountain snow to transfer water from when we get it in the wet winter months to when we need it in the dry summer months. We built our reservoirs pretty small because we had mountain snow. We have ecosystems that are adjusted to that timing of water availability. We have really, really sensitive snow to warming because it's pretty low elevation. It's called, we call it warm snow. Um, It's a lot of our snows near the freezing line. So it doesn't take much for it to warm um, for us to lose it. And if anybody skis at Snoqualmie Pass, they already know that story, right? So if we take the global climate change scenarios and uh, look at what they mean for the region, this is a map for the Puget Sound, Um, We see that as time goes on, if you could click the next one. So by the 2040s, um, the yellower, the redder the color, the more loss there is. By the 2040s, we're seeing about a 30% loss in the peak snowpack. And then by the 2080s, about a 55% loss in in peak snowpack. And this matters because so much depends on water. And so no matter what I'm talking about, I already I always start with this because all the other impacts sort of flow from this. And it and this is something we're really confident in that this is on average going to be what it looks like. We'll still have snowy years and even even drier years, but on average when it warms, we lose snow. So then I just want to walk through some of the impacts um, at a like 30,000 foot level so we can get onto the conversation. Uh, in general, the take-home message for the water side of things is less water when we need it and more water when we don't is what we can expect. So the less when we need it, right, is, well, if you care about skiing um, or if you care about natural um, snowmelt increasing uh, stream flow for salmon or other cold water systems, um, or if you care about... The, nat- the delivery of water for irrigation water supply or for drinking, we'll have less of that available. We'll have more water when we don't need it, and that means more fall and winter flooding. And so I have a picture up there of the Chehalis River, which is, a fa- which is famous for flooding and closing I-5. And it closes I-5 for a couple days, and it costs $15 million in travel costs and delays alone, not counting like economic consequences of not getting the goods delivered. So this increase in flooding, decrease in summer water supply, increased stress to salmon and other cold water ecosystems, and increased risk of landslides are some of the changes that result from these changes in hydrology. Another major way that climate change is going to play out in the region is through changing forest disturbance in geek speak, or the combination of wildfire droughts and insects. So we know that wildfire risk is related to climate, and the drier it is, the higher that risk is. And so under a changing climate, we can expect much greater increases in wildfire risk, double to quintuple, depending on the scenario you look at, and much greater risk of big fires. So we just mentioned we've had in 2014 a record-breaking year of wildfires, in 2015 a record-breaking year of wildfires, and you know the wild ma- fire wildland managers don't expect that to be stopping anytime soon. So can you go back? Um, just a quick. The the bottom left is a photo from the rainforest on the Olympic Peninsula, the Quinault that was burning this summer. So this is the environmental changes that we'll experience in places we go. But there's human real human costs from air quality, and then there's also a lot of costs that are borne by us through government responses to this, wildfires damage to energy transmission, for example, in the Carlton Complex fire. 
So when, one other key area, when we think about sort of aggregating these impacts in the main areas, one is the ones driven by hydrology, hydrologic changes, one is by wildfire changes, and one is by coastal changes, which are the combination of sea level rise, river flooding, coastal erosion, and changes in the chemistry and biology of the coastal waters. And so I have a snapshot of a bunch of pictures up here to sort of give us, like in all of these areas, the threads that climate change pulls are many and numerous. So we're talking about increased risk of erosion for coastal properties, which also translates to increased risk for really important coastal habitat for um, spawning salmon, salmon and other other creatures. Changes in ocean chemistry leading to acidification and challenges with uh, shellfish. Um, and actually, in you know, sports fishermen rejoice. Um, we have brand new species coming up here that we can. <laughs> we can catch now and then. There was actually a blue marlin off the coast at one point. Um, I put a, a map up of downtown Seattle showing the areas projected to be inundated under different sea level rise scenarios. And this is a sort of segue into what I, our conversation is going to be about later, which is there's a vast number of cities, counties, state agencies, federal agencies who are already thinking about these risks, understanding what they mean for them, and preparing their responses. So that map of Seattle, the Seattle risk map, is actually developed by Seattle Public Utilities itself. So um, I just I want to wrap up with that because I wasn't supposed to talk very long, and nobody came out to really see a PowerPoint in a bar. Or may, I mean, I guess you did, because you're here and you just saw a PowerPoint <laughs> in a bar. But you were hoping it would be short, and it was. So I just want to leave you with this for now, which is that when we think about reducing the risks of climate change, we have to remember it's a two-sided coin. So we talk a lot about reducing the core causes, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which is the essential part of the whole issue. How much climate change are we going to cause and how fast? And that's all about our energy choices, our energy uses, and our consumption patterns. And I think that's what Councilmember O'Brien is going to talk a lot about. We also have to identify and prepare for the impacts. Sometimes people call that adaptation or preparation or risk management. And those impacts are going to be widespread because climate touches everything we do, and they're, to some degree, inevitable. What's not inevitable is how hard they hit us. That depends on whether we're looking for them, whether we're planning ahead and preparing for those risks. So that's the side of the coin that my work focuses on, and I'll be happy to answer questions as we go on about that. So thank you. I think that was the best bar PowerPoint I've ever seen. Thank you so much, Amy. That was great. <laughs> so I want to turn to Mike now, Councilman O'Brien, and ask you to give us just a quick update on how is the city of Seattle approaching climate change and what, as, as Amy was talking about, what are we doing in terms of mitigation and adaptation at the city level? Great. I'll, um, I'll jump in there. Are we done with this? Can I turn this thing off? The, the projector? Um, I'm going to add my, my, little, my two most recent doom and gloom stats that I just keep in my back pocket. I have a, my youngest son is um, a ninth grader, and he was giving a speech on climate, so he found one of these for me. He said that um, uh, when you measure the average monthly global temperature compared to the baseline, the historical average, the last, I think, nine months in a row have each been the record hottest 
uh, month. Um, so May was the hottest May ever. <laughs> June was the hottest June ever, all the way through to February. Um, and we get kind of used to these things because we're just setting records. And the other one I heard was um, we, about two weeks ago we hit peak ice in the Arctic, um, and now we're on the decline. And uh, peak ice this year was the least amount of ice we've ever seen, setting a new record, beating last year, which was the previous record of the least amount of ice. And as we know, it's, it's, that's one of those great examples of these negative feedback loops where um, the ice in the white... Uh, reflects the heat back into the atmosphere. When the ice isn't there, the dark blue ocean absorbs that heat, which just starts accelerating the problems we're already having. So, now that the doom and gloom is behind, I'm going to talk about the politics, because that's a cheery subject to get into when we talk about climate. Um, and I, I just want to say that, you know, the, the, the science is clear. Um, we know exactly what's going on, and it's the politics that's not so clear. Um, and I want to give kind of just two quick stories of the reality that I've seen just in the last, um, you know, the last six months around the politics. Um, very different stories. Um, one is I was lucky enough to be in Paris back in early December when the climate conference was going on. Um, I wasn't there because Obama needed me to negotiate anything. But there was a lot of great energy going on around climate. And frankly, a lot of local leaders had convened in Paris at the same time to talk. And the, um, the most powerful event I went to was one at Paris City Hall. Um, they had about 1,000 mayors from around the world um, as part of this major uh, climate discussion. And I can tell you that when you talk to cities around the world, they get it. There's no more debate. Um, these leaders from, uh, uh, no one from Antarctica, but all the other continents were there. Um, and I heard folks from major cities on all continents um, and presentations and forums and panels talking about what they're doing in their city, the impacts they're facing already, and the mitigation strategies they're taking. And it's uh, refreshing to see that so many folks from around the world get the urgency and are already taking action and are looking for our national governments to do that. The flip side of that um, is the United States Congress. And I challenge anyone to put 538 people into a room anywhere and find a higher percentage of climate deniers than we see in the United States Congress. Yeah, it's not really to clap at, frankly. It's uh, quite unfortunate. And you think about how, um, how can we have such a non-representative body making crucial decisions, frankly, not just for our country, but they've been dragging um, the whole planet behind on climate discussions the U.S. Congress has. And this is uh, a little beyond the topic of this, but they're just, our, our government, especially at the national level, but at all levels in the United States, has been structurally engineered, I believe, over the last hundred years or so um, to allow folks with a lot of money and a lot of power to have this undue influence. And that's what I believe we're seeing in Congress and places around the country. So is it as simple as money calling the shots for the politicians that are indeed denying climate change and the clear science now from where you sit? Or do you think there's other stuff at play here? Um, I, I think it's largely that. I mean, I, I look like if I were to pick a handful of things, one is I think the gerrymandering redistrict to create these extremist districts where, um, you know, folks, uh, you know, frankly have to not believe in any science to get elected kind of thing. Um, you know, that's just crazy. Um, but that's, I believe, largely driven by the money in politics and the fact that 
Uh, you know, frankly, our fossil fuel industry is a big one, but there's other industries, too, that have driven really unfortunate decisions. And so that's a, a huge part. And we have, to, um, we have to change the people that are in power, for sure, but we also have to structurally re-engineer how our government works and how our political system works, or we're just going to be back in this problem forever. Um, so... The global reality is the science is clear, and I believe there's a lot of politicians out there ready to do things. We have this major obstacle in our country, in the U.S. Congress. Um, but we have cities around our country that are doing a lot of great things. Certainly cities like Seattle, the green cities or the blue cities, um, but even leaders in, in big cities that we would often consider red cities or cities in red states are doing really progressive, amazing things around climate. Um, and so that's the thing that gives me hope. And so what are we doing here in Seattle? Um, I'll tell you, I, I've been a volunteer with the Sierra Club for 15 years. I've only been on the council for six years. You talked about the, the mitigation and adaptation. And when I started doing climate work, I really thought adaptation was a dirty word. And I didn't feel like we should even be talking about that because that was acknowledging that we were going to fail and that was going to allow space for the folks that didn't want us to succeed to say, succeed to say hey, we don't have to worry about it because we can always fix it later. Um, unfortunately, we're at a point now where, as a city leader, we are facing the costs on a daily basis of, um, of the, the impacts that we're already facing. We have to adapt. Um, that doesn't mean we stop mitigating because, frankly, everything we do is going to lessen those future impacts. And so we've got to be pushing full speed ahead on both of those sides. So what, you know, some of the things the city's doing, um, you know, we have a great climate action plan. Um, we're good at plans around here. We have a, some beautiful documents. We have a commitment to be carbon neutral by the year 2050. But we're actually taking some really positive steps in that direction. Um, you know, the biggest emissions factors in the city of Seattle and, frankly, the state of Washington are our buildings and how much energy they use and our transportation sector and how much energy they use. Um, in Seattle, we're lucky that we have a municipally owned electric utility that's been 100% um, carbon neutral for over a decade now. So our electricity is great, um, but we have a lot of other things, a lot of energy that's used in our buildings. So we have um, done a lot of work on our energy code. You know, this is wonky stuff, but um, in commercial buildings, the city is allowed to exceed the state requirements on energy code, and we have, and we have one of the most aggressive energy codes uh, in the country, in, in the city of Seattle. And what has that led to? Well, we have expertise in the city doing that work to meet that energy code. We have companies, um, I'll shout out to uh, McKinstry and McDonald Miller, to um, uh, you know, mechanical engineering companies that install HVAC and insulation and those types of things in buildings that are out there on the front line figuring out cost-effective ways to reduce energy consumption, creating great jobs in the process um, good-paying union jobs right here in our city, and frankly, they have a presence around the country doing this kind of work. Um, on the transportation sector, um, you know, you heard the announcement last week from Sound Transit. We're, I'm going to try to say this with a straight face, we're talking about a $50 billion transit package going to regional voters in November. Um, and I can tell you why it's so big is because we now live in a reality where it's not just Seattle, but every city in Pierce, King and Snohomish County, their leaders are saying, we now get that we can't build roads to get out of the mess we're in. We want transit. We want high-capacity, reliable transit in all of our cities. And now we're fighting over who gets the transit as soon as possible. 
Um, and yeah, that's a great place to be. And those are, um, you know, the work to design, engineer, construct, and operate those transit systems. Um, you know, we are going to be doing some amazing work in the next couple decades along those fronts. And so there's, there's, there's great work that's happening um, in the city of Seattle. Um, and yet, I can't help every night go home and think that we're not going fast enough and we need to go faster. Yeah. Um, so last summer, you grabbed headlines when you got into a kayak to protest the Shell oil rig that was parked in our harbor. I, I watched that very, very interestedly because um, as I was watching kind of many communities along the railroad lines passing um, resolutions saying they didn't want oil trains or coal trains coming through their communities. And it seemed, seems a little bit like, forgive me for sounding jaded, but an exercise in futility as sort of these, that those kind of resolutions don't necessarily hold up in a court of law unless they are the end point of the rail line where a project might actually be built. And then by the same token, as a local leader, what does you getting into a kayak accomplish in terms of really affecting change on this issue you care so much about? Yeah. You know, um, it was a really, it's been a really interesting path the last couple of years, both oil trains and what happened in the, at the Port of Seattle. Um, just a, a little bit of background on me. Um, I wasn't raised in an activist family. I went to Duke University, got a degree in economics. I got an MBA from the University of Washington. My 10 years before being on the city council, I was the CFO at a law firm. Um, you know, I, I, I tried to avoid wearing a suit and tie all I could, but, you know, I, I'm pretty straight-laced, and I try to play by the rules. And last summer was the first time that I was ever in a position um, where I ever put myself in a position to actually get arrested for something that I believed in. And I can tell you what got me there was um, I felt like as a citizen, as an activist, um, I had done everything that I could to stop something that shouldn't hap happen from happening. Um, and as a politician, too, as a policymaker, the oil trains is a great example. You know, when, those, when we first were made aware that these things are rumbling through our town, we passed a resolution probably uh, two years ago now um, stating our opposition to them and that we were going to come back and do something. We spent a year working on what we could do to stop them at the local level, including bringing in national legal experts on railroad law. And at the end, all we got was another resolution say, we are still very opposed to this. I mean, we just felt so powerless on this system that was rigged for oil companies and railroads to do whatever they wanted in our city. And then along comes this prospect of drilling in the oil. And you know, any rational thinker at that point says, there is no way we should be drilling in the Arctic today. We don't need that oil. It's destructive. Um, there's just a, a whole host of arguments you can make why this made absolutely no sense. And yet, for these oil companies, somehow it makes financial sense for them. And then you layer on top of that that they wanted to host their, their, um, their fleet in the city of Seattle. It's like, you, you can't do this. Um, and so, you know, we fought through um, our legal venues. We... You know, there was a, f a few folks, unfortunately, on the Port Commission that were on the wrong side of justice on this one. Um, but the city council and the mayor of Seattle were united in opposition. A lot of county leaders were united against this. Um, and we got to a point where we said, you know, this can no longer happen. And so, you know, getting out there in a kayak was, um, was both, like, a scary thing for me to do um, 
and also one of the most powerful things I felt I've ever been able to be part of. And part of it was because it wasn't just me. Um, the, you know, the first group that went out that morning, there was about a dozen of us. Within an hour or so, there were probably 30 or 40. And there were hundreds of people, frankly, working behind the scenes. You know, lawyers that have been prepping us for months on what to do. Um, the major environmental organizations, and a big shout out to Greenpeace for dropping like a dozen organizers, full-time paid staff in Seattle for months to build up to this. Um, to create a space that, yeah, did I believe that me and my boat was physically going to get between that oil rig and stop it um, in some meaningful way from getting to the Arctic in time? No. Um, did I hope that maybe we could delay it an hour or a day or a weekend? Yes, absolutely. But it was also about the letting the rest of the world know, letting the rest of our community know that there were people, not just those in the kayaks, but those on shore, those in support, that stood by and said, this is a ridiculous thing to be doing. And look at that ridiculous picture of a couple people in a little tiny kayak with that massive oil rig behind them thinking that somehow they actually can stop it. And it's like both the ridiculousness of that juxtaposed with, wait a minute, who's ridiculous in this picture? And it, you know, when, that started, when those pictures started making um, international headlines, I believe that was part of what um, changed the dialogue with Shell. And there was a lot of economics around that for sure. But I, I, I believe that um, this city um, put a permanent stake in the ground to hopefully prevent forever any more Arctic drilling. Thanks. I want to turn back to Amy here for a minute. Um, one of the things I have a lot of respect for that the Climate Impacts Group does is goes into communities that maybe are not necessarily as embracing of the science as um, leaders like Councilmember O'Brien are and help those local leaders figure out what to do about the real impacts, such as flooding or um, you know, pl planning around landslides and things like that. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you kind of navigate that and communicate to, to help local leaders that are on the front lines of, of these impacts that we've been talking about tonight? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the Climate Impacts Group works really hard to... Uh, our, our main audience and our target is people who are making decisions now in all of these areas that I talked about before that will set us up for future vulnerability or resilience to a changing climate. So when people are building water treatment plants on the shores of Puget Sound. Are they thinking about sea level rise? Have they factored that in? When King County's placing its sewage treatment plant on the shore of Puget Sound, have they thought about where the outfalls should go because of sea level rise? When DNR makes its forest management plans, are they thinking about the changing risks of wildfire and insect outbreaks? Or are they just planning for the, fu the future of the past? That's a good one. I've never said that one before. Um, but that's true, right? We used to plan for the future of the past. Now we have to plan for the future of the future. Um, so, uh, you know, our approach to this is that we work really hard to understand what people's risks are now and what they're facing now and whether and what we can say about how they'll change in the future. So we bring people tools to understand how year-to-year -year changes will affect them so we can, our group actually pair, uh, uh, um, what's the word when you do it first? Pioneered, yes, we didn't parameterize. We pioneered the work on what El Nino means for the Pacific Northwest. So 20 years ago, our first effort was to say, 
NOAA had all these El Nino forecasts, and they didn't understand why no one was using them. And we said, well, we don't know what they mean for us. So we did the research to understand what we all sort of have as common knowledge now, which is El Nino makes it more likely to be warmer and drier than average and low snow. Not always, but more likely. And La Nina, the opposite. So we go to people and say, your job, for example, as a floodplain manager is understanding, predicting, responding to floods and um, managing development in the floodplain. And you know that the FEMA flood maps are completely out of date because they're based on development patterns of 25 years ago. So regardless of what the climate has done, the water runs off faster because there's way more pavement than there used to be. So you're struggling to figure out how to do this, and you have an inkling that floods are also changing for other reasons. And yet you're designing infrastructure, and you're making building codes and land use codes. And so we work with them to identify the tools that would be helpful for them to do their job better. And are that... Are those ideas always well received, knowing that you're the climate impacts group in communities that maybe don't really believe what you're preaching? You know, frankly, our strategy has been to look for innovators and change makers in, um, in organizations and people in organizations with high up enough in the organization to have some power to change the way things are done and low enough in the organization to know how things are actually done. And we give them the tools they need to do things better. And then we share their stories. And we, and we transfer their information and expertise to others. So Seattle has been a leader for almost two decades in the way the public utility has looked at climate risks. And for a long time, they were the only one who was doing that. And now they're famous around the nation and the world for doing this and have brought many other utilities along with them. And we've seen that same approach in many places. So, yeah, it sounds great. But on the other hand, we were recently up for some potential funding in the Washington State Legislature. And in one conversation with a very key person in the budget process, we finally convinced them that we knew... That, that we were doing something that was of value to them in their district as well. And they said, that's really great, but I don't like your name. And we said, well, what don't you like about our name? And we said, they don't like the word climate. And they don't like the word impacts. So we thought we'd so rename just, ourselves just the group. Just group, yeah. I think that's safe. If I can just jump in, yeah. because I think the work you do with local officials is so powerful. And I, you know, I sit around the table with local elected officials from throughout the region and we have, you know, different political views. But the one thing I'll tell you about local officials, especially the good ones, regardless of any political affiliation, um, at a local level, you just don't have that much room to be terribly ideological. You have to make your city work. You have to make your county work. You know, when the bus doesn't show up on time, people are pissed at you. And so um, we have to balance our budgets. And so when someone says, well, this is going to have an impact on your budget because now... Um, you know, now your electricity is going to go up and you're going to be responsible for raising rates for your constituents. Nobody likes that, and they want to address that. When we talk about oil trains coming through communities, um, you know, there are communities, um, I think of Marysville, um, where the railroad track divides the city. And I don't, I don't know that the mayor of Marysville cares a lot about climate or what he thinks about the Lummi's rights um, for coal trains, but he is definitely opposed to an hour more of train delay dividing his city, and signs the letter with the rest of us saying this is not fair, what's happening to our community. 
And so there is this, this reality that, that climate is bringing to us today that I believe is going to get through at the local level, even in, in towns that are um, seen as red as opposed to blue, where people just, the reality is they have to address those concerns. Before the federal government, those guys will continue to ignore it as long as they can. So I want to start thinking about your questions. My last question for you guys before we turn it over is um, I want to talk a little bit about the source of the problem, the cause of the problem, which is our CO2 emissions, and what is happening or what's on the table in terms of what we do about that. So it was just recent, just today actually, the um, carbon tax um, is, was not approved by the, the state leaders, and so it's going to be going to a ballot initiative, meaning you'll have a chance to vote on it in the fall. Meanwhile, the cap-and-trade idea is still alive. There are environmental groups that are pushing for a cap-and-trade system. Um, so basically, tax, you just throw a price on carbon across the board, 25 bucks a ton of CO2 emissions, and a cap-and-trade, that's an overall limit for the total amount of emissions. And forgive me for folks in the room who probably follow this really closely, but um, I wondered, I would really like to hear both of your thoughts in terms of those two potential routes that we take as a society if we are serious about taking on our carbon emissions. Yeah, why don't I start? Because I think my answer is going to be a little less specific than yours. So I hope it was clear from what I was saying and from one of the graphs I showed that we are making a choice every day today about how much climate change we're going to have. And so it's never been more urgent to actually address the root cause of the issue and reduce emissions. That said, I individually am agnostic on the general um, approach as to cap and trade versus carbon tax, because as I understand it, you can manipulate either one to do the job, or either one can fail miserably at doing the job. And so the more important thing in my mind are the criteria and the constituent parts. So is there a fair tax? I mean, is there a tax that, uh, is there a price that does the job? how much of the carbon-producing um, activities in the area are, are um, taxed or charged, um, how much leakage is there. And then I also think it's incredibly important to think about what we do with any revenue. And frankly, I look at the infrastructure, the human, and the ecological costs that we are racking up every day with these impacts I described to you. And I look at local governments who already don't have enough money to do all that they need to do now. And I wonder how we're gonna deal with these issues. And so I think it's imperative on us to find a way to support our society's building of resilience. And it makes sense to me as a individual citizen that you pay for what you need to do to fix the problem with the cost of the problem. I agree. <laughs> um, you know, one of the most powerful things we can do, in fact, the tool that most needs to happen is a price on carbon. And um, I also am agnostic on the uh, tax versus cap and trade and all the different... Oh, come on, you're uh, not. I, I actually, I, I'm not agnostic on Initiative 732, but the mechanism, I, I frankly am. I... I, I agree with what Amy said, that they can both be manipulated to make it work and fail. Um, the thing that needs to happen in my mind, and, you know, this is like arguing between streetcars and buses and light rail cars. It's just like I, I, I can only argue that stuff for so long. I just I want all of it. I don't really, 
I, I, that's not my argument. Other people that are smarter than me can decide which is the best mode. And similarly on the carbon tax, I've been at those tables over beers listening to people go cutthroat at each other on it. We just need a price on carbon. And you know what we're stuck with at the city level is figuring out how to kind of reverse engineer prices on carbons by making things harder to do and easier to do that we want to do. But boy, a price on carbon that, that fully uh, reflected the actual cost of its impacts would be an amazing thing. That said, how we do it is critically important. Um, and like so many injustices in the past, the, the threat of climate change or the reality of climate change, like all those others before, um, is caused by the people um, with the most power and most money, and the burden are going to be carried by so many folks who had nothing to do with creating that problem. Specifically, you know, in our country, we're talking about immigrants and refugees, communities of color, low-income households, um, the ones that haven't been consuming at ridiculous rates and getting rich off of using fossil fuels are the ones that will not have the resources to survive in this new climate economy. So what I firmly believe in um, at the high level is, as Amy said, we absolutely have to use the funding that comes from um, a price on carbon to mitigate the impacts on folks that are going to struggle to mitigate in their own, with their own resources. We need to help them out. Um, you know, the, 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 the person that lives in a 10,000 square foot home that's air conditioned year round and drives a Hummer, raise those taxes, make them pay, figure out what they're going to do. The family, yeah. the family that lives a, an hour from Seattle because that's the only place they can afford to live and works the night shift when transit doesn't run and has to drive their 20 year old car that's not particularly fuel efficient because it's old and that's all they can afford. You know, simply saying, I'm going to make carbon more expensive for you so you will choose otherwise, they're not making a choice to burn carbon. They're trying to survive. And we, I believe, have an obligation to help them out. And what does that look like? Well, frankly, uh, traditional environmental organizations are largely white, middle, upper class people making decisions. And we need to change the face of the environmental movement. And there is some really powerful work happening right here in our community right now, where um, voices from those communities, from communities of color, from immigrant communities, from low-income communities, that care about the climate and always have, are having a seat at the table and playing a, a role really centered around how do we move forward on a carbon tax that is fair and just. And as we move forward on a carbon tax, what I think is probably most important is that we build that coalition and center that work around the people who are most impacted by it so that we get it right. And then the next most important thing is we get that carbon price in as soon as possible. Well said. Thank you both. Questions? Yeah, come on up. Come up to the mic if you wouldn't mind. Both. My question is probably directed to you, council member. Um, but I address it to the audience also. And it's what is the most effective way to make contact and get a message to an elected official? Specifically, um, the two senators we have in, in D.C. are getting basically a free pass from the progressive movement in this region, and they don't deserve it. They both voted for and are both supporting NAFTA, and the TPP, neither which are environmentally friendly, let alone labor friendly, 
many other cases. Um, there, Senator Murray is running for office now, but there is no organized uh, resistance. There's no organized that I can find, so I'm listening for it. There's no organized push to her to be responsible to the needs that are happening here. I've written thousands of letters to her, okay, a few more than less than a thousand, um, specifically about the coal trains, the oil trains, the Bakken crude. The TPP has, in fact, paved the way for the uh, crude oil export capability now. The TPP has paved the way for TransCanada to sue the states for not, for not allowing it to have its profits. So where is the resistance? Where is the organization? How do we get to people like Murray? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I can tell you that as an elected official who hears from a lot of folks that there are a lot of different ways, I think, to have impact. Now, as a city council member, I have a different set of constituents than a U.S. Uh, senator. Um, but I can tell you that, that um, there's a whole host of things that matter. Um, when I know that we got 500 emails on a certain topic, even though I'm probably not reading all of them or they're all identical in, in nature, that matters. And so when you get the little alerts that come through, someone's tallying that up and typically telling the elected official, hey, we're getting swamped today or bombarded today on that stuff. Now, that's not the same type of personal message, but I'd say that for a lot of folks, that matters. Um, I also would say when you have a chance to be in front of folks and tell a personal story about how you're impacted by it, that can be really powerful. And thinking about who the messenger is, I think, is really powerful, too. And, and knowing, you know, like Mike O'Brien, you know, who is my base? Who are the people that, that I want to look good in front of? Who are the people that, that I want my legacy to be? And finding those folks to stand up and say, um, you know, Mike, this decision really impacts my community, and we're looking at you to lead on this. Um, now, it's, really, it's, it's, it's easier to get in front of me because I'm around a little more than our U.S. senators. Um, but being strategic and trying to find those opportunities or create those opportunities, you know, knowing when they're on recess, when they're in town, finding someone who has a connection to them, you know, staging a theater of sorts to bring them out to an event and hope that they will be receptive at that moment when they hear it. It's, 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 it's a game of numbers, though. Um, the other thing, that, though, is just about building campaigns and building movements. Um, you know, we saw how powerful um, the kayaktivism was here in Seattle on an international sale. We saw what um, raising the, the movement to uh, raise the minimum wage to $15, what the impact that had. Um, and some of that is just about we get to a point where it's clear that the broader public is totally with us on that. And TPP, we've made some inroads. You know, the council passed a resolution almost a year ago saying that we oppose fast tracking and have serious concerns about TPP. You know, in that process, there was a lot of education. We elevated it a bit. Um, we just wrote a letter unanimously saying, please vote no on this and turn it down. It's a bad package. Um, but it has to do a lot with community organizing and creating that perspective. It is, and it's hard to bake through. The, there are powerful interests, including you know, folks like Boeing, that um, may not be a constituent very long in the city if they keep cutting jobs and moving out of state. But you know, our senators are listening to them, and I frankly think they shouldn't. The other thing that I think um, is really important is that we have real political campaigns. And no one should get a free pass. I shouldn't get a free pass. The senators shouldn't get a free pass. Senators shouldn't get a free pass. Um, you know, I'm not going to get into a Bernie-Hillary debate here, but I, I firmly believe that it's awesome for democracy 
that we have an actual race on the Democratic side, and they're challenging each other on ideas and not insults. Um, but all elected officials should have to go through that every two, four, six years and fight for that. And, you know, frankly, if, if they were getting challenged from folks that felt strongly against TPP, um, you know, in our city, uh, I think we might see different outcomes. Next question. Hi. Um, so I'm interested in energy. Now, Seattle's uh, City Light can sort of boast the 90% carbon neutrality because we rely really heavily on hydropower. And I've been following um, pretty closely the decommissioning of the Elwha Dam. So I'm curious uh, whether the dams that are producing the hydropower for Seattle, uh, how close they are to the end of their lifetime, um, what the decommissioning plan looks like, uh, whether those have been... Uh, like Elwha, one of the big things was that that was inhibiting the salmon population pretty seriously. So we can say that we're being very sustainable because we're carbon neutral, but at the same time we have these environmental impacts built into this clean energy. Um, so, so yeah, I'm interested in whether and how soon those dams are going to be decommissioned, and also whether we have an energy plan post those dams um, to sort of maintain that carbon neutrality. Um, is there any City Light expert in the room that knows more than I do? Because sometimes there's City Light employees that come to these things. Um, I'm, I'm not a total expert on that. The city, though, I don't believe has any plan to decommission the dams. We get um, about 50% of our electricity comes from dams that are owned by Seattle City Light. Um, a big chunk of that is the Skagit River Complex. So there's Ross, Diablo, and New Halem dams. Um, those are all above um, salmon habitat. They can't get to that because there are other natural barriers below that. Not to say that those dams don't have other impacts. Um, the other dam that we own is in northeastern Washington, a boundary dam. And um, I, think, I don't think that's a salmon. There's other fish that, that migrate through there, and so there's fish patches they work on. But I don't believe that's a salmon habitat dam. And I think part of our plan is to, uh, I mean, the long-term goal is that we maintain those. We get the other half of our electricity, um, some from some of our renewable energy projects. We have um, methane reclaimed from, from the landfill. We have um, uh, partners in wind farm. We have a little bit of solar, local solar. But the biggest chunk is the Bonneville Power Administration, which is largely dams along the Columbia River complex. Those do have um, significant salmon impacts, and we need to constantly be looking at that. But... I don't believe, I mean, it's a challenge when we're talking about fish passage and climate. I certainly don't believe we should be building new dams. Um, and I certainly think, um, I mean, tearing down the Elwha, that was the first place I ever backpacked was up in the Elwha. And it's so cool looking. I mean, isn't it amazing seeing a river restored from 100 years ago? Um, uh, we should be looking for opportunities to do that. And there are more opportunities. I haven't heard that the ones that City Light owns are those opportunities. But when we take, you know, those dams weren't really producing energy anymore. We have to think, where is the other source of energy coming from? And it can be wind, and it can be solar, but there are things about how you balance the load and what time of day do they produce and what time of year. And hydro is a very great complement to solar and wind. Um, the other great complement is nuclear, and I am not a supporter of nuclear power. And uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, great. Um, and so you know, I don't want to trade off dams for that. I think we just need to be smart about how we move forward. 
I'm really I'm curious to hear Amy's thought on thoughts on this because I think one thing I've learned is that no two dams are alike and no two the circumstances behind and the needs behind no two dams are the same. And I think when we look at how to actually adapt to climate change when we get our precipitation in a different form now coming as rain instead of snowpack, can you talk a little bit about how those dams get used to actually help us adapt potentially? Yeah, that's a great another great question. So every every dam is different. Um d- Dams and reservoir systems have different uses, right? Some are for managing water for drinking. Some are for protecting against floods. So their goal is to be empty when the flood hits so they can catch it. Um, some are to generate hydropower. And, and they have specific times of day and seasons when they want to peak their power, right? So uh, our biggest demand at the moment for power is in the wintertime because it's for space heating and lighting. Uh, In the future, it may be more in the summer because of air conditioning. So when we look at um, managed water systems, they're all different. They're all across the board in terms of their ability, their vulnerability to a warming climate and their ability to adapt to it. So you have to just think about how much wiggle room they have now, right? So when you look at drinking water systems in the Puget Sound, for example, um, there's a lot of wiggle room or freeboard between how much water we all need and how much water the system can produce for drinking water. And that's improved by the fact that we've been conserving more and more and more as the years goes on. The total water use in Seattle has been going down even as population goes up. So places like Seattle and other small municipally owned watersheds tend to be pretty nimble in their ability to adapt to a changing climate because they are the sole uh, the sole entity running the system. That's not to say they don't have to answer to multiple um, objectives, right? They might need to make power, protect floods, keep water in the river at a certain temperature and flow for fish, and make drinking water. But they only have to trade those off against the laws in themselves, as opposed to, let's say, the Columbia River system, which has over 200 dams and over 400 entities who are competing for water use, none of whom are um, in charge for all the uses. So when you look at a system like the Columbia, that's the one that's really hard um, to adapt to climate change because of the inflexibility of the management um, the fact that many of the reservoir operating rules are codified by Congress, Congress cannot be changed without an act of Congress, and frankly, because in many parts of the system, it's tapped, it's full to the max, right? So taking water for one thing means you're taking it from something else. And so this is when adapting to climate change gets more challenging, and things where you create new storage for power or water come up. I I was in Denmark in the fall on a climate and energy trip, and I just learned the coolest thing about Denmark because they they made a goal to be the world's greenest economy, and Copenhagen was going to be the world's greenest city. And there are parts of the year, there are times when they produce more power green green power than they can use, than they need. So more than 100% of their demand is met. But they're... um, They have the problem, too, that it's really windy there. The wind blows a lot, and they're a small country, so they don't need all that power. So what they do is when it's really windy in Denmark, they're making a lot of power, and it tends not to be too bad in Sweden. So they pump water uphill in Sweden. And so Sweden is their battery, 
right? It's really windy. They pump the water uphill because they didn't need that power. When they need the power, they let the water come downhill and generate the power for Den- from Denmark. So I think it's just one more example of how we've gotten ourselves into trouble by managing things individually and up to the threshold. And now that we're at capacity, we have to come up with creative ways to look across communities, to look across resources, to find new ways to adapt. And frankly, it's going to take all of us and our good energy to do it. Just want to add one last thing on the energy front. Um, We have a ton of capacity in conservation that we can still do. We do an amazing job in the city, but you look at um, the Bullet Foundation or the Bullet Center, you know, uh, in their first year of operation, they produced 60% more like, energy than they actually used on site. You know, we can build buildings like that throughout our system, city and retrofit others. Um, and so maybe there's a future where we no longer need these dams and we can still provide all of our energy locally. It's, it's certainly mathematically possible and hopefully politically possible relatively soon. I want to just throw one question in real quick here. Um, from our, our cards that were on your table, I'm curious to hear our expert answers to the question, what freedoms should we restrict for the sake of the environment? <laughs> we had some really good answers from the audience, so I want to hear what they have to say. <laughs> you don't have to be elected, so you go first. <laughs> you know, when I, th- when I think about how we deal with these issues... I begin by wishing that everybody shared exactly my values and wanted to do exactly what I thought was a good idea. So I could answer that question by telling you what I think is a good idea and where, where people should live and what they should do for a living and how, you know, how we're going to manage our resources. Um, but then I quickly come to the fact that a challenge in climate change, in society, first of all, is we don't all agree, right? So what do we restrict? Well, we restrict what we come together as a society and agree to restrict. That's what politics and democracy are for. But I think the really crucial thing for uh, developing climate resilience is that we pay attention to the risks and who bears the costs of the risks, so if you want to live in a floodplain in your super fancy house, okay, I don't know who wants to live in a floodplain in a fancy house. You want to live on the coast in your super fancy house and you know it's going to erode and your bluff is going to collapse in the next storm, fine. Bail yourself out when it happens, right? So I don't want to bear the cost of the risk that you are assuming, so I think we, we have so many um, reward structures and um, insurance schemes and subsidizations that remove the cost of the risk from people who are incurring the risk. That I, I, that's what I want to restrict, I guess, is what I'm saying. While at the same time realizing that not everybody who lives in risky places chooses to do so, and so we need the social safety net as um, as sort of a- accompanying that for when it's not a free choice. Yeah, I'll say the the um, this isn't really a freedom, but in America sometimes it seems it's the, the freedom to pollute without paying for it. That's a freedom we need to get rid of. You know, people should be paying the cost for their actions. And Next so, time I'm going to go second so I can come up with a good answer. I know. I <laughs> you'll be elected soon. <laughs> you know, if someone wants to drive a gas-guzzling vehicle, whatever, but you don't have the the... the you know, God-given right to $2 a gallon gasoline, 
Um, you don't have the right to live in massive houses really far from everything and have a freeway that's uncongested to get back and forth to work and free parking right in front of your, you know, those are the things that aren't freedoms. And I think sometimes we, we often think is, you know, it's just the American way. But um, I still believe people should have the freedom to choose what kind of cars they want to drive, how they want to live. They just need to pay for the impacts of those, the pollution and otherwise. Okay, back to the audience. Thanks, guys. Sounds like you were talking about the Alliance for Jobs and Clean Energy, which was going to run a different uh, carbon tax initiative and then backed off once Carbon Walk qualified. And uh, so just wondered if you could say anything about they've kind of just backed off, but anything you can say about that and how should people should get involved. And then the other thing is the methane and Bill McKibben's article in The Nation and how maybe we're worse off in greenhouse gases than we were 10 or 15 years ago because of the methane problem. If you can address that. I'll jump in on, on so initiative 732 um, uh, folks successfully successfully gathered signatures last year uh, not an initiative a referendum referred it to the state legislature the way that works in the state the state legislature can pass it um, they can pass an alternative to put on the ballot for voters to choose between the two or it can do nothing and the voters get an option to vote on it um, Surprise, surprise, they did nothing. And so the voters will get a chance in November to vote on Initiative 732, which is what's billed as a um, revenue-neutral carbon tax. Um, so the part I like about it is that um, it uh, puts a price on carbon. It's something that I believe is fundamentally critical for what we do. Um, the problem I have, as I mentioned earlier, is I believe that we should use that revenue um, to help invest in, in technology or directly in people who um, don't have choices and yet are going to bear the burden. Um, turns out that a lot of the analysis now is showing it's actually not even revenue neutral. It's going to be revenue negative. Um, the thing that's really hard is I know um, a lot of folks in the community, myself included, have been really frustrated at how obvious a carbon price, how long it's been obvious that we need a carbon price in our system and it wasn't happening. And I have so much respect for the folks who simply say, I can't take no for an answer anymore. I'm just going to go out and do it on my own. And I know um, friends who spent a lot of time out there signature gathering, making this a reality, and I have so much respect for that and for the work they did. That said, um, there was at the higher levels of organizations, there was disagreement on how to move forward and who should be in charge and who should make decisions. And the result, unfortunately, is a initiative now that has a piece that I really like but that I can't support because of both the economic impacts of it and the fact that the communities that are most impacted um, have united and say this is not something that will work for our communities, the low-income communities, the communities of color, the immigrant refugee communities. And I, I, I got to stand with those communities in solidarity with them. We have to build a solution that's going to work for them or the whole system is going to fall apart. So I can say a couple words about methane because, unfortunately, I have not read the piece. Um, but me methane has long been uh, touted as a transition fuel as we move away from fossil fuels. Um, the idea was that we would use natural gas in the interim as, as opposed to uh, petroleum and coal. And the reason for that is you get more energy for the same amount of carbon dioxide pollution when you burn natural gas instead of oil or coal. And so it's long been touted as, you know, uh, held up and encouraged to be a transition fuel. The question I always had about that is that, 
we don't actually have a natural gas distribution system for our cars and buildings very well. Um, we have a lot of the world that runs on oil and coal. And so a transition actually requires a whole new infrastructure um, for distribution and use. And I always wondered how that worked, like how fast that could happen, that we could build a whole new infrastructure and then transition away from it to the green green power. So I assume that that's part of what, um, what the concern is. The other issue is that uh, methane is a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So when we uh, mine or extract and transmit natural gas through um, the oil fields, through drilling for oil, through coal fields, through pipelines, a lot of it escapes, and it's 20 times as potent as CO2 in the atmosphere. And so that's a danger and a concern, um, but it's a, it's a smaller amount, and it only lives for about 10 years in the atmosphere before it converts to CO2 in a very small quantity. So I think, I think there's a combination of those two things that the article was probably um, re responding to, and all I can do is give you some background so that when you read it, you'll be a better informed reader. And how many folks saw the, the massive natural gas spill in Los Angeles this year? Um, you know, it was on the scale of Deepwater Horizon, except it was colorless, and it was in the air, and there was nothing to look at, but, you know, these... Uh, I didn't realize that they stored natural gas in old wells underground or something, and then it, somehow this one blew a leak and it was under pressure, and just the, the warming that that one mistake made is just horrific. Hi. Um, I'm actually a staff member for Initiative 732, <laughs> and I feel like this past year has been sort of like watching my parents fight. Um, <laughs> I, I really have a healthy sense of desperation here because the world's burning and we need a price on carbon and we cannot wait until 2020 to put a price on carbon. Um, you know, I definitely understand what you said about have, seeing the limitations to political channels for change and I understand very well what you said about the importance of branching out and talking to communities and constituencies who don't really think about these issues or who have been historically ignored. Um, I think I-732 is a specific proposal, and so I think, um, I think we owe people a detailed explanation of it. I'm not here to start a debate or anything. All I'm gonna say is because it is a specific proposal, um, you know, you don't need to take anyone's word for anything. You can actually just read, there's a lot to read out there. Like you can read the actual text of it. Um, you know, it is the most powerful price on carbon in, ever proposed in any state, and it's also the most progressive change to our tax code in 30 years. And uh, I think the importance of what you mentioned about grassroots and movements really resonated with me, because, you know, um, because political channels are so limiting, I guess I want to ask, what can the environmental movement do to do a better job talking to the public about these issues and not just talking to ourselves. Um, first of all, I'm just, uh, while I um, will not be supporting Initiative 732, I don't know your name, but Ben? Yes. I support you. And I just want to give you a round of applause because standing up and fighting is really awesome. 
I have nothing but the highest respect for the folks that are working uh, at, at that level to make that happen. Um, specifically, um, you know, I can tell you as a Sierra Club leader or, and volunteer for 15 years, um, we, you know, for those that aren't volunteers at grassroots organizations, it's a lot of like coming to rooms like this, much smaller, sitting around a table and just talking about what are we going to do today. Um, and one of the things that we talked about for a long time was how do we become a more diverse organization? How do we, how do we make this? Why are these, you know, we're fighting these for, for these communities. Um, you know, in South Seattle, they should be here standing. They're going to be impacted. They need to be out here with us fighting these fights. And we just scratch our head, you know, how come we can't get them to be part of this movement? And um, that's typical, I think, of a lot of environmental organizations. And some of the evolution I've seen in the last handful of years is folks starting to realize that, you know, we need to go to these communities and ask what we can be doing for you. How do we understand what's going on? And frankly, you know, recognize, you know, I, 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 um, we have so many East Africans, uh, refugees and immigrants here in Seattle. Amazingly strong communities, frankly, communities that I didn't know even existed until I was a city council member. Um, and you talk to these folks, you know, I try to have a conversation to them about the environment, and they shut me off in about two seconds because they know so much more. I mean, these folks are climate refugees often who have seen firsthand. They get all this stuff. They don't need to be lectured by some guy who was raised in Bellevue or in Seattle um, on what the climate is. They just need us to understand that they have real challenges they're facing. They need help to get to a point where they can have some capacity to fight on this. And I think what the movement is starting to do, and we need to do a better job, is really um, finding those voices that are out there, supporting them, giving them energy, recognizing that when we're talking about the green economy and green jobs, it, it doesn't just mean that you're installing solar panels. Frankly, any construction job today, whether you're building light rail or building an energy-efficient building, those are great green jobs, and we're going to support you in that and make sure you have a good-paying career in that. Um, and once they do, they're ready to be out here fighting on the front lines for climate because they get it. And so those conversations are powerful and are happening. And, um, but I'm also open to other suggestions from folks in the room because a lot of other folks are on the ground doing this work, probably here in this room. Thanks. We're going to take two more, so you and the lady behind you, and then we're going to close it down. Hi. Um, can the city help people install more solar panels? I believe that's one of the goals mentioned in the city's plan to fight climate change. Particularly, can they help provide some low-cost financing for families and businesses to do that? I believe the state has scaled back their financial help. And related to that, our, our group has proposed a city bank that would be dedicated to helping provide low-cost financing for fighting climate change. And I wonder if you would take up that challenge as well. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> the, the, um, you know, so what you're talking about is, like, it's easy to read an article where it says, hey, this stuff already makes sense, it's cost-effective, or with certain tax rebates, we can make this stuff work today. And yet, we don't see the mass uptake in it. And you start looking at what are the obstacles that people find for, for installing solar or making the other types of investments around energy efficiency. Um, and often, you have to then get into, well, what are the financing mechanisms? And what are the cash flows of individu individuals? And how do we, um, you know, those, those, um, the kind of friction in the economy or in the transactions that you have to go through. You know, I got a busy job. I got kids. Uh, yeah, if I could just push a button, solar panels, Great, let's do it. But if you tell me I got to do like 
two weeks of research and then find a contractor and then argue with them about a bid and then figure out my roof and go get a per you know, Now I'm just like, I got to go to a soccer practice today. And so those types of things are the types of investments we want to do. We, we've, done, we've had some great programs. We're stymied a bit by the state legislature. Um, Seattle City Light has uh, um, maxed out the amount of rebate we can give as a percentage utility. And so some folks that made investments in solar in the last couple of years are starting to see that, that the rebate they were supposed to get is now being smaller. And you know, that's not fair to them. Um, and yes, if we want to, if we want to produce more solar, um, that's kind of the logical solution. That said, um, I'm looking at uh, Steve Gelb with Emerald Cities, Washington, and I know that there are other creative ideas for how we can accelerate it, even with existing state laws, and I think we have to be open to creative ideas, as opposed to listening to someone like me say, well, state law prevents us from doing it, so it's a no, it's a, a done deal. We can find solutions if we're creative, and when we get creative, we do find those solutions. And so I will commit to, um, if you want to chat offline or other, I'd be happy to sit down with you and learn, too. I'm, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the emotional consequences of all of this, both for, um, I think all of us are uh, of an active nature here tonight. I'm a psychotherapist, and so I think a lot about uh, feelings and emotion, and um, this is really hard. This is really hard because we're facing uh, potential catastrophe, disaster, et cetera, et cetera. And so how do we keep in doing this? Um, how do we help other people to understand? Uh, I think stories are really important um, as a way to do that. So I'm just, I'd just like to ask you to speak to that. Thank you. Can I actually say something about that really quickly? I've been thinking about that a lot, too. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, I've been covering this for 10 years now, and I will never forget when I was like early 20s working for the show Living on Earth, hosted by Steve Kerwood. Um, and he sat down with me, and he said, you know, the hard thing about this beat, covering the environment and covering climate change, is um, when you're a war correspondent, you get to go home. And, and when you cover the environment, when you think about this, like the people in this room think about this stuff all the time, it's always present, it's always on your mind. And so I think that what you're saying is a very real, um, a, a very real psychological burden that I think we, we all deal with. If you're here in this room and you're spending your Wednesday evening talking about this and thinking about this, you're dealing with it too. So. Yeah, I also appreciate you bringing that up because it, it, I've worked on this for over 20 years and, and I'm and I'm quite challenged by it. And I, um, I cope with it in a variety of different ways myself. Um, but I think if I try to boil it down, we, th these are changes that are happening. So we can either deal with them in our daily lives or we can ignore them. And I don't feel good about ignoring them. So that's one choice I make that's on the positive side that makes me feel better to be involved. I, I work really hard to try to help people understand what they value about their place, this place, what they're trying to achieve. I work with a lot of public managers, public lands managers, public resource managers, city planners, people who have dedicated their lives, public servants in the best way, to to making a contribution to their corner of the universe. And uh, we work really hard to give them the tools so that they can continue to succeed in that, even as the climate changes. 
So I'm not so naive to think that we can just smile our way through this and that there won't be negative impacts and pain along the way, especially because we're not doing a damn thing about it yet. Um, but I try to create a sense of sort of agency and positive momentum by talking about what I like most about this region, what I care the most about, and bringing as much knowledge as I can to other people who are working in this region because I firmly believe that the best way forward is with our eyes wide open and all the knowledge and tools that science can provide to help us get to where we want to go. I, I can just tell you what I do for myself too and I don't, um, I don't know what works for everybody but um, it is, it's, it's really, you know, if, if I focus on the negative it's just, it's really a downer and that doesn't motivate and inspire me. And so I think it's important for me personally um, to know what's going on, to frankly get angry, get pissed, you know, to see when, when the system is broken and undermining all the things I care about. Um, but then it's also important to, to select where I'm going to engage in ways that lift me up. And you have to have victories. And um, finding, you know, at the end of the day, we are all in this together. And I believe in humanity, as gloomy as it looks at times, that we will somehow pull through this. And there's amazingly indiv amazing individuals in this room and throughout our community. As a species, I think we're very resilient. And together, when we're cooperating, we're going to find solutions. And when I'm part of that, um, I really get uplifted. It's powerful, whether it's um, the, you know, being part of the kayaktivism, whether you're on shore or on water or sitting at home reading about it um, and just feeling like, like this is powerful, this is exciting. That's, to me, that, that brings us together. Um, I'll give a, just another example because this room reminds me of it. Just a couple weeks ago, there was an explosion about a block from here that destroyed three buildings and thankfully um, no major injuries to anybody. Um, that happened at like 1 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday morning. Thursday afternoon, this, this bar um, said we're going to raise money and they donated I think 12 kegs that they were going to say all proceeds go to it. This place was packed and I came out here, the bike racks were packed, there was like a 30 minute line to buy a beer. They went through I think all 12 kegs, they raised almost $10,000 maybe even more. But you know, you're in this room and here's this tragedy that had happened less than 48 hours before and you couldn't help but feel this such positive energy in this room because people were coming together saying, we're going to figure it out. We're going to fight it. We're, we're all in this together. You know, I, I know one of the business owners of the bike shop was here and he was like, you know, this, I just feel so, I was so down yesterday and I feel so up today because of that. And so I think we have to be smart and find those places to do that um, so that we're, we feel like we're making a positive impact. And we'll win this. Um, and it's going to be painful, but we're going to win it. At the risk of belaboring it, I wanted to say a couple more things. I, I, have, I have a friend who's incredibly optimistic. And, uh, and, 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 and when I get really stuck, I talk to him about it. And, and he has a really positive energetic vision about what is possible when you have to change and so 
I, I don't have, that's a very nebulous idea, but we have so many challenges in our environmental um, issues, in our communities, in our politics, and this is a stressor that is gonna keep pushing us until we do something about it. And the, the opportunity is what are we gonna do about it? And so that's, that's where we all come in, right? Where we all come in, where we think in advance about what we wanna do. And we think in advance about what kind of communities we wanna have. And our work is ha beginning to have more and more conversations with people about envisioning what successful climate risk management looks like. What does that look like in your community? What would be happening? Can, what can we work for instead of against? I want to say a big thank you to everyone who came out here on a Wednesday night and also um, to let you know that please email me if you're seeing stories that are about hope, that are about change in your community that you think others should be hearing about. I do hope you'll keep me in mind for story pitches. It's just aahern at kuow.org, super easy, or on Twitter. Um, so thank you again. Thank you to Humanities Washington for convening these amazing conversations. I feel lucky just to show up and be a part of it. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Humanities Washington hosted this Think and Drink conversation at Naked City Brewery and Tap House on March 30th. Thanks again to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Tune in again soon. Thank you.